0: Well, our time in the Word tonight is Bible question and answer, so we won't be in one passage. We're going to be bouncing around. Uh, So hopefully you have a Bible that you can use to go back and forth in, or I know that many these days may have your Bible on your phone or uh, some electronic device, and you can move pretty quickly, rapidly back and forth between passages. So uh, whatever uh, version of God's Word you have, go ahead and take that now as we... um, we look into God's word. The first question is in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's start there. And these questions, by the way, are in no set order, just were handed to me randomly. So uh, we'll just take them as they're stacked up here uh, beside me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And in verses 3 through 5, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And the question is this: says Pastor Brian, would you please address the verses in Second Corinthians ten three through five? Biblical counselors often use these verses. To uh, encourage us to help to control our thoughts, which is a good thing to do. However, uh, these verses are spoken by Paul, and uh, what they are or he is doing for the Corinthians. It seems like our application of this is not always accurate. Please comment. Well, I, I suppose this passage, like any other passage, could be used inaccurately, and maybe the person who turned in this question has heard someone. Uh, use this passage uh, inaccurately and not, not uh, interpreted it properly. Um, but I do think what you sort of allude to here is in this text, the idea of the importance of controlling our thoughts. Now, granted, uh, th- these verses occur in the context of 2 Corinthians. And what was going on, if you are familiar with this book, is that the Corinthians were questioning Paul. They were questioning his apostleship. Some were even questioning his integrity, Question his uh, ministry. And so there are a lot of questions about Paul, not merely questions, but accusations about Paul, accusing him of things. And they were saying, well, you know, he's, he's mighty by pen when he's away from us, but he's weak in the flesh. He really doesn't take that same stand, et cetera. So all of that's the context. And that's how this chapter opens, where Paul says, now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, And he's basically saying, I I do seek to be meek and humble, but don't interpret that as weakness. Uh, But being absent, I am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So he's saying people are judging me, us, the apostles, and uh, saying that we are just walking according to the flesh. We're one way at one time. We're one way at another time. Sort of we're two-faced, etc. And that this is the way we carry out our ministry. And then Paul explains that this is not the case. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Yeah, we're in these bodies. We live in the flesh. But that is not the way we uh, wage war in the spiritual realm. How do we do it? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And by the way, I have heard that uh, verse used or that word used sort of as a springboard to talk about all these strongholds that really take the passage in a different direction than Paul meant. What are the strongholds he has in mind here? He's talking about wrong thoughts, wrong ideas, wrong beliefs. Those are the strongholds. And so that's why he says in verse 5, casting down arguments, viewpoints, perspectives, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So Paul is saying, contrary to what we are accused of, this is really how we function. We try to take every thought, every idea, and put it through the grid of, is this true? Is this? Uh, does this line up with Scripture? Does this go with God's revelation? So uh, in, in answer to your question, uh, and I'm not sure maybe what you've heard, again, not doubting that you've heard someone use these verses wrongly, because unfortunately that's the case with a lot of Scripture, that people use it wrongly. But what you mention in here is sort of in the, not sort of, it is in this passage. I can see why biblical counselors use this text to encourage us to control our thoughts, uh, because what Paul is saying, if even though he doesn't use the phrase control your thoughts, he is saying Take ideas, perspectives, beliefs, thoughts, and bring them to the obedient, obedience of Christ. That is, evaluate them, assess them, find out if they're true. And in this case, Paul was even encouraging the Corinthians to do this because, frankly, they were believing a ro- lot of wrong things about him, questioning his motives. And uh, he was saying, you need to bring those thoughts to the light of the truth and evaluate them. So. It is valid, in my opinion, to take this passage and encourage us, encourage one another, if we are working with people, discipling people, counseling people, to say you need to control your thoughts, i.e., that is, you need to try to think biblically and assess your thoughts according to truth, because Paul says that's what we do, etc. So you are correct that it is in the context of what Paul was doing or encouraging the Corinthians to do, etc. But the principle of using this this as a sort of an exhortation to control our thoughts, I think is a valid one. So I I don't know if that helps address uh, if the person who turned in has a specific, maybe something you've heard, uh, we could interact on that. All right. next question says this, Dear Pastor Brian, in the end times, will the Antichrist be like a normal person or a leader? This is from a youngster. He handed it to me this morning. And could someone kill him? And if he did... Get killed would someone take his place? And uh, just a few comments on this. You know, I find it interesting that the Apostle John, when he wrote First John, said this in First John chapter two. He said, "Little children, you have heard that Antichrist is coming." That is a fascinating statement to me, because what John is basically saying is, and John wrote that letter late in the first century, he is, he is saying, by the time by, by the time you get to the end of the first century, John is saying, everybody knows, all Christians know, that someday the Antichrist is coming. Well, the interesting thing that that should prompt us, well, how would they have known that? Why was this such a common view among Christians? And the answer is because the book of Daniel refers to this person repeatedly, though it doesn't call him the Antichrist. calls him by a lot of other names. And Jesus refers to this in Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. So by the time you get to eighty, eighty-five, ninety A.D., when John wrote 1 John, he says, listen, we all know. And it's just this. Just every Christian knows that someday Antichrist is coming. But John is the one who gave him that title. He's not called by that elsewhere. John is the one who puts that. So all that to say, this youngster asked the question, he's asking a good question because this was just a known thing to the believers of the first century because this person is referred to so often in Scripture, though, as I said, not initially or usually by that title. So the question, will the Antichrist be like a normal Person, according to daniel seven twenty four you can jot it down because there are a couple passages, and we won 't have time to turn to both of them, uh, according to daniel seven twenty four this person who in that passage is called the little horn uh, he will not start out as a great leader or a great person. Uh, in fact, Daniel sees a vision where there are ten horns, ten l- rulers, ten leaders of the end times. This is verified in Revelation seventeen as well. Daniel sees ten horns, and then he says in this vision he saw a little horn which rose up and conquered three of the others. And so he started out small, normal, rose up, conquered three of the others, and then eventually became the dominant, the leader. And as we know from Revelation 13, he becomes a world leader. So in answer to your question, will he be like a normal person or a leader? Well, he'll start like a normal person. But he will sort of climb the ranks and become not only a leader, but the leader. And then you ask if, if you know, could someone kill him? And if he did get killed, would someone take his place? Uh, jot down these passages, uh, Revelation 13:3, 13.12, 13, 13, 13.14, because all three of those verses may indicate that the Antichrist will be killed, or nearly killed, and then raised from the dead, or Experienced something similar to a resurrection from the dead. Because in Revelation 13, it says that one of the things that the false prophet will use to cause or prompt the whole world to worship this man is because he experienced this fatal wound that was healed. This deadly wound that he either survived or came back from, etc. So in answer to your question if it, it Could someone kill him? Again, this is theoretical. We can't answer it if Scripture doesn't answer it. Uh, if he died, would someone take his place? I don't think if that's what happens, someone needs to take his place because according to Revelation 13, he's going to either survive a mortal wound or experience a mortal wound and then come back in some way, which will cause all the world to be in awe and worship him. All right, the next question says this. Biblically... Uh, Why do we worship on Sunday? Is this breaking the fourth commandment? Uh, Two parts to this question. First of all, biblically, why do we worship on Sunday? And by the way, we are not mandated to worship on Sunday. So in answer to the question, why do we? It's not why we must. It's why we do. And the reason why we do becomes evident as you track through the New Testament that the early church eventually began to meet on Sunday. Sunday, because it's the first day of the week, because it's the day Jesus was raised from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection is the reason why eventually the church, which started out, as you know, very Jewish, I mean exclusively Jewish for a while, and so it's understandable that they would initially begin to meet on the Saturday Sabbath. That's when they met. But then transitionally they began to meet on sunday and it's interesting that by the time you get to about ad 58 when paul wrote first corinthians and he's giving them instructions on their giving he says on the first day of the week when you come together let each one lay aside something to give etc but again at that point it was just assumed this is when the church meets not by mandate in other words, the, the, the scripture doesn 't say you have to if we lived in a certain culture for whatever reason, where Thursday worked best for god 's people, Thursday would be fine because Paul says in Romans fourteen when he talks about matters of the conscience and gray matters, you know not gray matters like your mind, you know you 're that kind of gray matter, but gray issues. Uh, he says that you know some people esteem one day more uh, than than another, and some every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Revelation fourteen, I mean Romans fourteen five. So he says that there is no one day above the other, but Sunday is the Lord's day because it's the day He was raised from the dead. That's why the church has now historically met on Sunday. And you ask, as the second part, is this breaking the fourth commandment? And uh, my answer would be, it would be if the Ten Commandments were still binding. Now, I know at that point, some people get really nervous. Like, oh, what are you implying? The Ten Commandments are not binding? Well, actually, nine of the ten are because they are reiterated in the New Covenant. But Colossians, Galatians, Romans could not be any clearer that Jesus fulfilled the Old Covenant. He fulfilled it in His teaching because He taught what It it was intended by it. He fulfilled it in his life because he lived it perfectly, and he fulfilled it in his death because he paid the penalty for the violation of it. And having fulfilled it, he said on the night before his death, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, when I die tomorrow and shed my blood, I'm inaugurating the new covenant. So what covenant are we under? We're under the new covenant. So therefore, it is valid to say that the old covenant has been fulfilled and we're under the new covenant. So the Ten Commandments... Are not binding. However, nine of the ten are reiterated in the new covenant. The only one that is not reiterated is the Sabbath one. And in fact, not only is it not reiterated, it is actually repealed. Colossians 2, Galatians, Romans. It's repealed. So, Saturday Sabbath is no longer a binding issue for the people of God. You don't have to worship on Saturday, you don't have to refrain from working on Saturday. You could choose to. But the the Sabbath command is no longer binding. And by the way, the person who submitted this question told me that she was in a conversation with someone who was Seventh-day Adventist and didn't know how to respond. And of course, now that makes sense that this is someone who believes that we are Seventh-day Adventism. We are the new Israel. So we have inherited all of the old covenant. So the dietary laws, according to their view, are all binding. And the Ten Commandments, in fact, all of the The Old Testament is binding. You know, clothing laws, regulations on planting, and all of that is binding because we're the new Israel. But we're actually under the new covenant, and the old covenant is not binding. It's been fulfilled in Christ. And so um, we worship on Sunday, not because we have to, but because we want to honor the resurrection. All right, next question says this. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 3, and uh, it's not specifically on this passage, but I think it will address the, the question. The question is this. Please explain the differences between coveting and the natural desire we have for good things. When does the desire that wells up within, beyond our control, become sin? Well, let me read you Colossians 3, verse 5, and just relate this verse to the question. Notice what Paul says here, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication or sexual immorality, uncleanness. Now I want you to notice what Paul is doing. He's starting externally with the action and he's moving internally. So fornication or sexual immorality, which is the action, uncleanness, condition, passion, motivation, evil desire, the prompting, and covetousness. And then he goes even deeper, which is idolatry. Now the reason why I think this verse is so insightful is because it sort of tracks inwardly what is a common pattern for us in our sin. That is, we do something on the outside, and in this case, it's talking about sexual immorality, because we have an idol on the inside, and the idol is at the deepest root level, and it starts prompting all these other things. And in this case, if you work backwards the other way, the idolatry produces covetousness, which results in evil desire, and you can go that way with it. So in answer to your question, Please explain the differences between covenant and the natural desire we have for good things. When does the desire that dwells up within become sin? It becomes sin when we are willing to disobey God to get it. So you you can take that and apply it to any situation. In this case, he's talking about sexual sin. So let's deal with sexuality. The book of Genesis makes it clear that sexuality is a good thing. God created human sexuality. Sexuality. In fact, if you were reading the book of Genesis for the very first time in Hebrew, it would really be shocking to you because you would see, and it was good, it was good, it was good, and all of a sudden, not good. Whoa, something's not good. What's not good? Not good man's aloneness. I will make a completer, a helper suitable for him. So God creates the woman. He says, be fruitful and multiply. And Adam said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So God created us as sexual creatures with a sexual desire. That's a good thing. But it's wrong if you want sexual fulfillment so much that you're willing to sin to try to attain it. Now it's become an idol. Now it becomes, as Paul says here, covetousness. And you could apply that to anything. Is it wrong to uh, want to have, you know, a, a nice, reliable car that you can drive to work? No. But if you steal money to get it, that's wrong. There's nothing wrong with the desire in and of itself. Is it wrong to want a nice job so you can provide for your family? No, but if you lie on the application to get the job, or you manipulate, or you you do something to try to push someone else out so you can get the job, then it's wrong. So the, the issue, whatever it is, could be something neutral or even something good. But when the desire is so strong that we're willing to sin to get it, Now it has become covetousness. That's what your question was, but I would just say take it a step deeper, which Paul does here. It's not merely covetousness. It's idolatry. Because you're willing to sin, violate God's word to get it, to have it, to experience it, whatever term you want to use. That's where the line is, where you step over from something that's a natural desire for something good to now it's become something sinful. All right, next question says this. Go back to Numbers chapter 11. All the way back to Numbers chapter 11. It says this. um, Well, verse 4, the question on verse 4, Now the mixed multitude who were among them, that is among the people of Israel, yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? And here's the question. In Numbers 11, 4 through 6, the people asked for meat. The children of Israel had herds and flocks. Did they not eat from their herds and flocks? If not, why not? So this is the question. Well, they had meat. What, what's going on here? What was so wrong? Well, what was so wrong wasn't really that they just wanted meat. Is you're right. They had flocks. They had herds. Here's what the issue was. If you just read the next two verses, verse 5, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt. Now we're seeing what the real issue was. It's not merely they wanted meat. They wanted Egypt. They wanted to go back where God had granted them deliverance. They wanted Egypt and all that went along with Egypt. It's food. It's culture. It's whatever they experienced. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. But now our whole bean is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. So just re- continue reading the passage and you start seeing behind what the real issue was. And this is one of the reasons why as the people complain, of course, God steps in to say, you know... Uh, I'll, I'll just destroy them, Moses, and make a new people out of you. And, of course, you know the story. Moses is, is saying, Lord, help me here. Did I beget all these people? I can't bear all these people. If you treat me like this, please kill me. I mean, Moses is so uh, despondent, discouraged, et cetera. And anyway, the story goes on. But the point is, the point is that it wasn't merely an issue of wanting meat. They wanted Egypt. They wanted to go back to where God had delivered them from. All right, next question, Romans chapter 7. We're just bouncing around to these questions back and forth wherever, wherever the question is located. So Romans chapter 7. In verses 15 through 25, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this passage. Paul says, verse 15, what I am doing, I do not understand, what I will to do that I do not practice, what I hate that I do, etc. cetera. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Most believers are familiar with this passage. And the question that is being asked is to whom and what exactly was Paul addressing in Romans? Now, let me sort of give you some background of this question because at first, depending on your view or maybe your exposure, you might think, well, why would someone ask that kind of question? The answer is because scholarship, good conservative scholarship, is quite diverse on Romans 7. Okay. Um there are very good Bible scholars who hold that Romans 7 is Paul describing his condition as an unsaved man. That he just he wasn't able because he didn't have the spirit of God to uh say no to sin, yes to righteousness, etc. I remember years ago when I was preaching through Romans 7, I read Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is one of my favorite commentators. He has a very interesting view as, as you go through his. And, of course, if you've ever re- read Lloyd-Jones, I mean, he is so voluminous. I don't know, it's like 50 chapters on this or something. That's an exaggeration, 49. I don't know. He has a lot of chapters on this. And uh, he just goes into all of this and says, you know, this, is, this can't be a lost person. This can't be a saved person. You think, well, what other category is there? And he says, this is a person who has been enlightened and is about to be regenerated. He's been enlightened by the Spirit of God, about to be regenerated, but he's right in that sort of that window just before conversion. And he goes into, and if you've ever read Lloyd-Jones, he really defends his positions. You may not always agree with him, but he never holds to a view uh, that, that he can't defend with a lot of, you know, back it up with a lot of information. Now, having said that, I don't agree with Lloyd-Jones' view, but he does a, a great job. So that is another view. It, it, it's an unbeliever, or it's, it's not just a straight unbeliever or a believer. It's this person who's, who's moving from unbelief to belief, and he's right in that window as the Spirit of God is enlightening him, quickening him, et cetera. That's one view. The view I hold, and it's not without... By the way, none of these views are without problem. Uh, if, they were, if there was a view that had no weaknesses, then everybody would agree with it, right? Everybody would believe it. Uh, But the view I hold is that this is Paul describing his battle with sin as a Christian. And the reason I hold that view, three sort of supporting factors. First of all, as you read through this, you will notice that Paul speaks in the present tense, not the past. He didn't say, uh, verse 15, for what I did, I do not understand. He says, for what I am doing, present tense, for what I will to do, not what I wanted to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do, not that I did. All the way through here he uses the present tense. So that's one of the reasons that kind of pushes me toward, it's Paul just describing his battle with sin as a Christian. Second reason why I hold that is because of where this passage occurs in Romans. Because it is, Romans is so systematic, so logical. 1, 1 through three twenty is is... Uh, Condemnation, or actually one one through eighteen is introduction. One <clears throat> uh, eighteen through three twenty, condemnation three twenty one through five twenty one, justification six one through eight seventeen, sanctification, eight eighteen through eight thirty-nine, glorification, nine one through eleven thirty six, Israel twelve and it's just so logical and systematic. And this section occurs in the uh, this passage occurs in the section on sanctification. Paul clearly begins in chapter 6 to talk about sanctification. And then in Romans 8, he continues to talk about sanctification. So it's sandwiched in between sections on sanctification. So I take it he's still talking about sanctification. And part of sanctification is our battle with sin. A third reason why I lean toward this view is that for me, it's difficult to understand how any unregenerate man uh, would would make the comments that Paul makes in this section about hating evil, desiring to do good, delighting in the law of God, delighting in the word of God, those sound to me like the comments, the perspective of a regenerate man, not an unregenerate man. So for the, that reason, I hold that Paul is, your question is twofold, to whom and what exactly? Uh, to whom is this passage, well, this is to the Romans describing Paul's situation, but specifically I think, Describing Paul's battle with sin that every one of us in this room can relate to as a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that's what the passage is saying. So hear me closely. That doesn't mean that's what it's saying. But it is a fact that every one of us in this room, if we're honest, will acknowledge we can relate to exactly what Paul is describing here. If that is what he's describing. Because every one of us in this room battles sin. And there are times when we say, I just end up doing what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Oh, wretched man, who will deliver me? Uh, Any Christian who says he doesn't battle sin is deceiving himself, or she's deceiving herself. Any Christian, and again, call it what you want, sin nature, sinful disposition, flesh, old man, etc. There's something there we battle. We all have to acknowledge that. And I think that's what Paul is describing. And to me, actually, this is encouraging. If, in fact, this is a passage on sanctification, it's encouraging to know that Paul, maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived, had to battle sin too. It's easy to put Paul, you know, super saint, pedestal. Paul had to battle sin. Remember Acts 23? He's there on trial. I've lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And the guy says, slapping him in the mouth. Hit him in the mouth. Guy hits Paul in the mouth. Paul says... God will smite you, you whitewashed sepulcher. Who are you sitting in judgment? The guy says, what are you doing? That's the high priest. Oh, I didn't know it was the high priest. Well, does it matter that it was or wasn't the high priest? Should he have taught? This is the same guy who wrote Romans 12. You know, when you're reviled, don't revile in return. And when you're persecuted, you know, kindness in return. So Paul like all of us, had to battle sin. And I think that's what he's describing here in Romans 7. Though the view, again, is not without difficulties. And, uh, you know, I I know who asked this question. He's right in the middle of, a, I think, a big paper on Romans 7 trying to determine his view. So uh, uh, good luck to you as you sort through all of that. All right, next, Mark 16. Mark 16. Uh, verses 17 and 18. Now, even as I say that, I want to say that some of you uh, won't have verses 17 and 18 in your Bible. Let me explain why But after I read them. But Mark 16, verse 17. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, and they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. So the question is, please explain Mark 16, 17, 18. I've been confronted by other people who believe we all have these gifts and they use this passage to back it up. How do you respond? Well, first of all, there is a major textual problem here. Major textual problem. Uh, If you are using the the. ESV or the NIV, you may not even have these verses in your Bible. If you do have them, I guarantee you have some kind of footnote or study note saying these verses are not in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. Same thing with the NASB. If you have them, a King James or New King James, they will be in your Bible because of the Textus Receptus being behind them. But you will have some kind of note indicating that. So that is... And if you're not familiar with textual criticism, at first it sounds like, oh, people are attacking the Bible. That's not the case. There, there are people who use textual criticism to attack the Bible, but there are very godly conservative scholars who understand textual criticism and manuscript issues. And this to use this passage to try to create any doctrine, if you can't defend it elsewhere, is on very shaky grounds because of the textual problem. Secondly... It's interesting to note that these very things that are, so if you accept this as textually valid, these are the very things the apostles did with the exception of we have no record of anyone drinking poison. But take the example of the serpent. Who, who experienced something like that? In fact, who's the only person in the New Testament who experienced something like that? Paul, Acts 28, an apostle. So the apostles did these things. So it still doesn't prove that it went beyond the scope of the apostles. And then thirdly, I would say this, if you try to use this passage to say that all who believe will do all of these things, now you have directly, specifically contradicted 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-nine and 30, where the Holy Spirit says through Paul, do all have gifts of healing? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all speak in languages? No. So you have a very clear, direct statement that that is not the case. So to use this passage, which is textually suspect, and if you don't know what that means when we get to the end of Mark, I'm trying to still figure out where I'm going to go with the end of Mark to explain textual criticism, but we're going to have to address that when we get to the end of it. But to use that is very suspect, especially if you use it in a way that contradicts clear Scripture elsewhere. All right, next question says this. Turn to Jude uh, for the, it's not specifically on this, but you can turn to Jude t- for the answer. Uh, it says this, How can we know that Sodom was destroyed because of homosexuality? Ezekiel 18, 49, and 50 mentions abominations, but also has a list of other sins. And then in Genesis 13, 13, it mentions wickedness and sinners against the Lord. Could one not assume that they rejected God as mentioned in Mark? Absolutely. No question about that. Also, the phrase live ungodly is what is used in Second 2 Peter 2.6. So in other words, they're saying there you have these other passages that talk about God destroying Sodom because they lived ungodly and they have abominations, and so can you connect it to homosexuality? And the answer is yes, you still can, not exclusively, But in Jude, when Jude describes God's basis for judgment, notice what he says in verse 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, and he's referring to these angels, which we'll come to in a moment, having given themselves over to sexual immorality, what kind of sexual deviation, Paul, and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude specifically says that, though he's not maybe implying that's the only reason, that was a specific reason why God judged them. And if you look in Genesis 19, we don't have time, you know the story when Lot had these visitors come, and the men are pushing at the door, and they're wanting to know these, they thought they were men, know them carnally, and Lot of all things says, here, take my daughters, don't do anything to these men, and that wasn't sufficient for them. They didn't want the women, they wanted the men. So there's no question, there's no no reason to back away from the idea that God destroyed Sodom because of homosexuality. Granted, maybe not exclusively, but that clearly was a major issue in God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. All right, next question says this, uh, were Old Testament saints born again? It's a very good question. Let me just give a couple thoughts on that. Uh, I'll just reference it rather than having this term because of time. In 1 Samuel, if you read the Samuel narratives on King Saul, you will run across the statement that God gave Samuel a new heart. God changed, I'm sorry, not Samuel, Saul. God changed Saul's heart. He gave him a new heart. Now, we do know from the New Covenant passages of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, God predicts it as something that's future. I'm going to take out your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. But what he's referring to there, he's not saying that the new birth will only be in the future. He's talking about it nationally, where Israel as a whole nation would experience this new birth. But I think the clincher for me is, of course, when Jesus talked with Nicodemus in John 3, he says, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. And by the way, that was still spoken, even though it's in the New Testament, that was still spoken under the Old Covenant. The new covenant, remember, didn't start until Jesus shed his blood and inaugurated the new covenant. So Jesus was speaking to, to Nicodemus in old covenant times saying, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And he wasn't saying, you have to be born again, but just wait a couple years, and after I die on the cross, then you can be born again and be saved. No, he was saying, you need to be born again. So in answer to your question, were Old Testament saints born again? Yes, I believe they were born again. in the futureness of the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah only is is referring to this future mass new birth or rebirth of Israel. All right, speaking of Israel, next question says, where does what is happening in Israel right now, and all of you are seeing the news, fit into Scripture? And what where does Russia fit into this picture? Well, what is happening in Israel right now maybe doesn't have anything to do with Scripture, or maybe it does have to do with Scripture. You, you can't say. Uh, one thing it is interesting is that it's, it's just remarkable, if you stop to think about it, that a country st- smaller than the state of New Jersey dominates the news, even when they don't have a war. It's as, a, as if God keeps that in the news all the time. It's always in front of us. Uh, but what is happening in Israel right now may have nothing to do with Scripture. It may have you ask about Russia. Uh, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is going to come a time when Russia, Gog, Magog passage, the, this kingdom of the north, Russia is going to attack Israel. Now, when that's going to happen is hotly debated among scholars sort of even under the same theological you know, heading. Uh, for example, I know many of you are familiar with Joel Rosenberg. It's his opinion that this is going to happen before before Daniel's 70th week. Uh, some even place it after Daniel's 70th week. I lean toward a view that it's going to happen within Daniel's 70th week or the seven-year tribulation period. So what's going on now? Does it have anything to do with Scripture? We don't know. It maybe could continue to unfold and then tie in with Scripture. But right now, you can't say... Uh, you know, there, there, there's a ditch on both sides of the road here. Every time something that happens in Israel, don't say, oh, that's fulfilling prophecy. Because it may not be fulfilling prophecy. But don't, on the other hand, the ditch on the other side of the road is just to ignore Israel. With all that God says about Israel in the end times, you're foolish if you ignore Israel. So the, 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 the happy medium is where we ought to stay. Keep your eyes. Just be alert. You remember? Jesus rebuked the people of his day by saying, listen, you can read the weather. You say, well, the sky's like this. But you don't even know the signs of the time. You're not, you're not even alert what's going on so be alert but don't go overboard and every time you know some change happens in israel oh that's the end times the end of the world and here we go all right next question will there be are there pets in heaven if christ were to return right now what would happen to our pets and if they're left behind please don't tell me Uh, well good i can tell you this scripture doesn't say so it doesn't say however I do believe, and I don't have time to defend all of this, I do believe there will be animals in heaven, part of God's original creation. It was very good. Whether they are animals that were here on earth, pets, etc., we're just not told. So if Scripture doesn't say, we're wisest not to say. So I don't pop your balloon there on that one. All right, 1 Peter 3. Two more questions here. 1 Peter chapter 3. So we're in Jude. Back up to the left a little bit. This passage that you ask about here is very complicated, and actually what I would encourage you to do, if you really want to sort of unpack it, is uh, on the website on the GBCmT.org website, you can go back to the first Peter series and just listen to the message on 3:19 and 20, uh, because that's what the question is about, where it talks about Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when the, once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Now, I'm going to tell you, I hate doing this. I'm going to tell you what I think the passage is saying, but I just don't have time to defend it. So if you want to go, the message defends all the reasoning, a context, original language, all of that, and I just don't have the time to do that. So I'll just tell you what I think the passage is saying. You can go to the message and listen if you want the documentation, the support, the data behind it, all right? So what it is saying is this. That Jesus, after he was dead in the flesh, he had died, but was still alive in his spirit. You remember he said to the Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So his body's in the grave. He went to the Father before he returned into his flesh, into his body, on his way back into his body, if you will. For resurrection, he went and preached, not preached the gospel. This is not the word, to preach the gospel. This is the word, to make a proclamation. He proclaimed to the spirits. And when the term spirits is used without any other definition, always in the New Testament, it's referring to angels or demons. So he preached to the spirits who were in prison. What spirits are you talking about, Peter? The ones who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah. That pushes us back to Genesis 6. So I think what this is saying is that in between his death and resurrection, in his spirit being, not in his body, Jesus went to the spirits, the demons, who in Genesis 6 cohabited with women in an attempt to destroy the Messianic line, and Jesus went and proclaimed his victory over them. He did not preach the gospel to them. He did not give them a second chance. He went and proclaimed victory over them. That's what I think it's saying, uh, but if you want the support or documentation, you'll have to listen further. All right, final question. Uh, you don't have to turn to it. It's a long passage and the, the person summarizes it well anyway. It's from 2 Kings 4:18 through 37. It's the story of the son of the Shunammite woman. You remember the child died and Elisha sent Gehazi, his servant, with Elisha's staff to lay it on the boy's face. And he probably did that because Elisha was older and it was going to take him a while, so he thought, "Here, take my staff, go place it on the boy and maybe God will use that" to revive him, to raise him. But it didn't work. If you know the story, Gehazi runs ahead, he puts it on there, and nothing happens. And so the question is, it didn't work. The boy never revived. What went wrong? Elisha had to go lay on top of the boy. You remember he placed himself right on top of the boy and brought him back to life. Why didn't the staff work? What went wrong? And the answer to that question, I read it again this afternoon, is simply this. The text doesn't tell us doesn't tell us why it didn't work so all we can do is make maybe an educated guest maybe number one the lord wanted to make sure that no one believed there was anything magical in the staff maybe that was it or secondly maybe the lord wanted elisha to be personally present to connect the miracle to him as israel's prophet so that people would listen to his message and look to him but you're right it didn't work we're not told why but elisha thought seems to the text seems to imply he thought it would here, take this. I'm, I'm old. It's going to take me a while to get there. Run ahead. He got there. It didn't work. Elisha finally gets there. He's told it didn't work. He revives the boy. So Scripture doesn't tell us. That's as far as we can go with it and maybe take some educated speculation. All right, great questions. Uh, Lord willing, we'll do it again next month. Let's stand and close with prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this evening just to uh, touch on, and that's really all we've been able to do with uh, many of these questions, just touch on some some important issues, some important things. And uh, we, we don't want to just simply question things to satisfy our curiosity. We want to, if we question, we want the question to be for understanding because you have given us your word that we might understand it. And there's no virtue in ignorance. There's no virtue in in wrongly dividing the word of truth when Paul exhorts Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. So grant us the diligence to do that, the desire uh, to seek to do that, and above all else, remind us that uh, our purpose, our goal in understanding your word, it's not an end in itself. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, when he talked about all Scripture being your breath, is so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work so that we will live the way you want us to live and serve the way you want us to serve and minister the way you want us to minister. That's the ultimate goal. May we always keep that in mind as we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.